National Trust Magazine, Spring 2024. Hello and welcome to the Spring 2024 issue of National Trust Magazine. I'm Sally Palmer, editor of the magazine, and I'll be taking you through some of the highlights. Spring is traditionally a time for new leaves and new beginnings. This year, we've given your National Trust magazine a fresh new look for springtime too. We've been listening to what you, our members, have told us you want from your magazine, which we send you three times a year as part of your membership. And we've made a few changes which we hope you enjoy. And don't forget, there's still a large print edition, in both colour and black and white, available on request. If you're looking for some inspiration for your next visit, dip into the Out and About section for a flavour of what might be on near you whether that's a local event or something seasonal to do. Or simply take some time for yourself and settle down with one of the feature articles to discover more about how your support is helping the Trust to look after nature, beauty and history for everyone, forever. Here's Olivia Vinnell, Akia Henry and Glenn McCready to tell you about what's been happening around the Trust. Tributes to a tree. Thousands of people worldwide paid tribute to the Sycamore Gap tree at Hadrian's Wall in Northumberland, which was illegally felled last September. The lone sycamore tree became famous after appearing in the 1991 film Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Although just the stump remains, the ranger team is hopeful that it will regrow. Trust experts have taken seeds and cuttings to propagate and grow new descendants. The Trust has also been listening to our supporters' ideas on how we provide a fitting tribute to the tree and involve people in deciding its future. Working with Northumberland National Park, Historic England and Hadrian's Wall Partnership, we'll consider the thousands of ideas we've received. To find out more, please go to National Trust org.uk forward slash Hadrian's dash wall. Bird flu update. In the summer of 2022, the news carried photographs of figures picking their way over rocky cliffs, cloaked head to toe in PPE and carrying bright yellow hazardous waste sacks. They were trust rangers, picking up dead seabirds on the Farne Islands in Northumberland. That season, the seabird colony was devastated by avian influenza, bird flu, and rangers picked up over 6,000 dead birds, mostly guillemots, kittiwakes, and puffins. Fast forward to the summer of 2023, and sadly, bird flu returned to the farns. It also spread to five more trust sites around the UK, from the island of Brownsea in Dorset to the coast of Northern Ireland, with the loss of more than 7,000 birds across the sites. Long Nanny in Northumberland, home to Britain's largest mainland colony of Arctic terns, as well as a smaller colony of little terns, was hit particularly hard. At the Farne Islands last year, rangers began picking up dead birds as soon as they started appearing, in a bid to limit the spread of the disease. It appeared to help, with the number of dead birds down 39% on 2022. Rangers are monitoring the sites and working with partners such as the British Trust for Ornithology, but more long-term coordinated research is needed. There was a small ray of hope at Blakeney Point in Norfolk, where the little tern population, unaffected by bird flu, enjoyed its best breeding season to date. 
For now, the Rangers are preparing for whatever the season ahead will bring. High Society Walk in the footsteps of Jane Austen, Charles Dickens and Thomas Gainsborough at the Bath Assembly Rooms. The elegant buildings were a hub of fashionable society in Georgian Bath, where people gathered for balls, concerts, tea and gambling. The Assembly Rooms are now under trust management. Work is underway to reopen them with a new experience, where visitors will feel transported back in time to life in Georgian Bath. The Assembly Rooms are due to fully reopen with the new experience in 2026, but for now, they remain open for guided tours and special events. To find out more about the project, book tickets for a tour, or to donate to the project, please go to nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash bath-assembly-rooms. New Access Guides Working with Access Able, we are providing digital accessibility guides for every trust place. They contain details about toilet and changing facilities, car parking and cafes. Available from September, but some guides are already live at accessable.co.uk forward slash national dash trust. Finding your past. We've been uncovering stories about trust places and the people who lived in them with genealogy service Find My Past. Records from 200 trust places from the 1921 England and Wales census are available free for you to search online. Visit online at findmypast.co.uk forward slash national dash trust. Our Dream Farm Tune in to Channel 4 this spring for Our Dream Farm with Matt Baker. The new series follows seven prospective tenant farmers as they take part in a special selection process to become the new tenant at the Trust Farm at Wallington in Northumberland. And those were some highlights from the spring news. Our next feature is from the Director-General. Your chance to hear from Hilary McGrady. Part of the joy of the National Trust is that everyone experiences it in their own way. You might search out the best gardens, plotting trips to take in the daffodil or rose seasons and seeking tips from gardeners as you go. You might be looking for the thrill of the great outdoors on windswept walks along coastal paths, up hills or down mountains. You might be fascinated by art and interiors, soaking up the grandeur of the beautiful houses and collections in trust care. As a pamphlet from 1897 set out, the trust is friend alike of historian, painter and poet. However we choose to experience the trust, the truth is that we are all united by a shared love of nature, beauty and history. We all want to enjoy it and to pass it on to future generations. Nowhere was that feeling more evident than in the response to the felling of the sycamore gap tree last September, which stood beside Hadrian's Wall in Northumberland. Its sudden loss prompted a huge collective outpouring of emotion. The trust was inundated with emails and letters expressing anger, grief and sadness at the loss. Many shared their memories of visiting the tree, of marriage proposals there or the scattering of ashes. It meant a lot to me personally too. My husband and I visited the tree when we were walking Hadrian's Wall for our honeymoon 25 years ago. 
The team at Hadrian's Wall is now working carefully with partners and the local community on the next steps forward for the site, with the stump protected and the seeds of the tree safely collected for our plant conservation centre. I'm grateful for the many thoughts and ideas that have been shared. It's been wonderful to see so much enthusiasm for the future. Despite the sadness, I hope we might be able to take some hope from this moment, to use it as a force for good. The loss of Sycamore Gap should be a reminder of just how important nature, beauty and history are to all of us, to our sense of place and as the backdrop of our most important memories. These aren't just nice to have extras, but essential to having a good life. It's all too easy to realise what we've had when it's too late. Our natural world and our shared heritage are facing multiple threats, from the impacts of climate change on our buildings and landscapes to the rapid decline of nature. We must redouble our efforts to protect the places we love and help others to do so too. So whether you're a garden lover or a studier of architecture, I want to say thank you for your support for the Trust. It means that we can continue to care for our shared heritage in order to pass it on to future generations so they too will be able to find their own interests and enjoy many happy memories of their own. Thank you, Hilary McGrady, the Trust's Director-General. Last November, the 128th AGM of the National Trust was held at the Museum of the Great Western Railway in Swindon. Anthony Lambert reported on the day, and his words are read by Glenn McCready. The Trust returned to this railway building near Helis for its AGM on Armistice Day, with Countryfile presenter Charlotte Smith once again hosting the proceedings. Chair René Olivieri began by welcoming everyone in the room and online and reflecting on the AGM's three functions, to look back over the past year, to exercise democratic rights and to consider what more we can all do to support and celebrate nature, beauty and history. The Trust, he explained, has always responded to the challenges of the time. Today, the loss of biodiversity and the climate crisis are our greatest threats, as shown by the latest State of Nature report. The Trust must play a central role in nature's recovery and always take a long-term view. Director-General Hilary McGrady spoke next and began by thanking everyone who contributed to the Trust's work. Many of the challenges the charity faces are too great for the Trust to deal with on its own, but by reaching out to engage new audiences and forging new partnerships in standing up for nature, it can achieve so much more. Hillary concluded by looking ahead to the Trust's garden at the RHS Chelsea Flower Show, to a conference with the V&A about the role of the country house today, to planting the three millionth tree on the way to 20 million by 2030, and to finalising the Trust's new strategy, which will be announced in 2025. Interim Director of Finance, Dabinda Hutchinson, gave an overview of the Trust's finances. She explained that the increase in property operating costs reflected larger numbers of visitors as well as inflation. Spending more on property projects, using some of the reserves built up during the pandemic, meant that overall expenditure exceeded income by £51.4 million, despite an increase in income of £38.6 million, 
which was helped by record fundraising. Questions from members to the executive team spanned the breadth of the Trust's work and concerns. Is the Trust holding its bank to account for higher environmental standards? Does it engage enough with local communities before making decisions? How can the Trust better attract young members? The first of four members' resolutions encouraged the Trust to create more walking and cycling routes at its pay-for-entry properties near urban areas. The Trust already supports this aim and is developing 20 green corridors. The resolution was carried. The second resolution proposed the removal of the quick vote introduced last year. Quick vote allows members to vote in support of all recommendations of the Board of Trustees and Nominations Committee with a single tick. The proposers argued that quick vote meant members were unlikely to read published information and risks a perception of rubber stamping. The Trust responded that it had adopted this wider industry practice with advice from Civica Election Services, the UK's leading provider of voting services. The resolution was not carried. The third resolution called for a paragraph of the charity's National Trust Order 2005 relating to the council election process be rescinded, with the argument that the Nominations Committee recommendations effectively predetermine the result. Since a Nominations Committee is standard corporate governance, helping to ensure that the Council has the breadth of knowledge to carry out its remit, the Trust opposed the resolution. It was not carried. The final resolution called for the restoration of Clandon House in Surrey after the 2015 fire. The proposers saw this as an opportunity to preserve skills. The Trust countered that its light-touch restoration leaves the door open for future generations to adopt a different approach, if required, and, as insufficient historic fabric survives, except in the Speaker's parlour, which will be restored, it would be almost impossible to replicate the construction of interiors using original techniques. It is supported by the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings. The resolution was not carried. The chair closed by sharing the main points he had taken from the day. Strong support for decarbonisation and meeting net zero, local community involvement and the importance of next-generation engagement, especially in urban areas. If you'd like to watch a recording of the event, go to nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash AGM. The 2024 AGM will be held at the Newcastle Civic Centre on the 2nd of November 2024. On your bike, Head of Data Hugh Davies reflects on his recent quest to cycle to every place in the National Trust Handbook and shares some green travel tips for visiting your favourite places. It's read by Glenn McCready. The idea started percolating around in my head sometime in 2020. Like so many people, I was struggling with the Covid lockdowns and thinking about what I would do when I could get out and about again. I love a challenge, I love cycling, and I love exploring areas that are rich in nature and history. And, as the Trust's head of data, I also love a good statistic. Eventually, these thoughts boiled down to two simple questions. Could I, a middle-aged man in Lycra, 
cycled to all 624 places in the National Trust Handbook in the course of a single year, and if I could, which would I discover to be the best trust locations for cyclists? In my view, there's no time like the present to encourage cycling and other forms of car-free travel. The transport sector is the largest emitter of carbon dioxide in the UK, so finding greener ways for people to visit will help the Trust reduce its environmental impact. It's something Trust supporters have said they're keen for us to work on through emails, surveys and on social media. At the annual general meeting last November, 87.7% of Trust members who voted supported a resolution to improve our provision for green travel. The Trust also wants to make sure that everyone has the chance to enjoy nature, beauty and history, and cycles can offer freedom of movement for people with limited mobility. Together with the fact that over a fifth of households, 5.8 million in England and Wales, and almost a fifth, 150,000 in Northern Ireland, don't have a car, I felt there was a clear need to find alternative, sustainable ways for people to visit trust places. For myself, I love cycling. As Ernest Hemingway said, it is by riding a bicycle that you learn the contours of a country best, since you have to sweat up the hills and coast down them. While slogging up a steep ascent in gale-force wind and rain might not be everyone's cup of tea, I'd argue that it's hard to beat pedalling along on a sunny day, surrounded by all the sights and sounds of nature that you miss when travelling by car. I did have to remind myself of this optimism on the 30th of May 2022 when I was grinding my way up Porlock Hill in North Somerset on the third day of Le Tour de National Trust, my three-month cycling sabbatical, finally putting two years of planning into practice. In fact, looking back, I'd say that sorting out the logistics took almost more effort than the cycling itself. It was a painstaking task, over many evenings, to plot my routes. I needed to visit several places each day to fit them all in, and find a spot to overnight before moving on to the next part of the country. I had my background in data and digital cartography to work from, but the difficulty of finding safe, suitable routes is regularly cited as the biggest barrier to people cycling in the UK. As a confident road cyclist, I felt that I could safely reach 91% of the places in the National Trust Handbook, but Cycling UK estimates that 80-90% to 90 of UK adults rarely, if ever, travel by bike, suggesting that few people would feel comfortable cycling along the fast and busy A roads that often lie between the towns and cities where most of us live and our local trust places. The Trust is working closely with other organisations to try to tackle this issue. In Cambridge, we've teamed up with the local authority to create a dedicated cycle path linking the city to Anglesey Abbey, 7 miles or 11 kilometres to the east. Similar projects are underway for Killerton near Exeter, Osterley Park in suburban London and Tintsfield near Bristol. The Trust has also been looking at options for people who want more of a challenge. 
such as the Tros Iruri, Trans-Snowdonia, Trail, which opened in August 2023. This route was mapped out by Cycling UK, which worked with us and other organisations to connect existing trails and create new ones. The route takes four to five days to complete and passes through spectacular landscapes in trust care. If you're keen to pedal to your local trust place, I'd recommend looking at the National Cycle Network, NCN, on the Sustrans website. A quarter of trust places are within a mile of these routes, which mostly follow quiet roads or designated cycle paths. We are working with Sustrans to map out new links to the networks, which will open up even more options for cyclists. Over the next year, we'll also be updating our website with more details on finding the best cycle routes to trust places. Although my trip mostly focused on bike-friendly routes, I did explore other forms of transport along the way. My family acted as my support crew during the trip, but we soon realised they were much happier when they weren't having to drop me off at the start of routes or wait in obscure locations to pick me up. For this reason, I often ended up using trains to get around. My team at work calculated that more than half of trust places are within four miles or 6.5 kilometres of a railway station. In several cases, I found good traffic-free routes between stations and nearby properties, such as the Buckinghamshire Greenway, which links Aylesbury Vale Station to Waddesdon Manor. I didn't go inside many of the houses during the trip, usually because there wasn't time. However, wherever possible, I had a nose around to assess how well each place was set up for cyclists. I created a survey and checked each location against a set of criteria, such as, is there safe cycle storage? Can I borrow a puncture repair kit if needed? And how far is it to the nearest scone? I found some room for improvement. Only 37% of trust places have cycle racks, for example, although the reception teams were usually able to store my bike while I looked round. At Chirk Castle in Wrexham, my bike got its own stable. At 79% of places, I found it difficult to work out where cycles could and couldn't go, although signposting for mobility vehicles was usually very good. There were many wet, hill-filled days when nothing lifted my spirits like the sight of a trust tea-room appearing through the mist. Of the 269 cafes I surveyed, 53% had space for me to leave my bike in sight of my table. Others were a long walk from the nearest parking, which can be tiring after a long cycle ride. In partnership with Good Journey, a sustainable travel planning website, several trust places in the north have been trialling a 10% discount in shops and cafes for anyone who visits without a car. Secure cycle storage, accessibility, signage and, most importantly, access to tea and cake. These are all areas that the Trust is working on. We are also in the early stages of projects to install more electric charging points for cars and e-bikes, with the aim of rolling them out to every suitable location over the coming years.
Any dog owners who are familiar with our paw print ratings might be intrigued to know that we're working on something similar for cyclists. Each location in the handbook will be rated based on how cycle-friendly they are, for example, if they have bike racks or trails. While the Trust is keen to welcome more cyclists, I totally understand that it isn't possible or appealing for everybody. But it is a very adaptable pastime, which a huge range of ages and abilities can enjoy, especially as hire schemes are becoming more common and there's a good market for second-hand bikes. There are even several trust places which offer the ideal introduction to cycling. Currently, there are 13 multi-use trails at trust places across the UK, 10 of which were created with £2 million of national lottery funding from Sport England. These trails are great for new cyclists as they're smooth and relatively flat. My daughters, who were seven and nine when I did my trip, loved the multi-use trail at Wallington in Northumberland. They also had fun learning new off-roading skills on the pump track at Saltram in Devon. If you prefer more of a challenge, there are mountain bike trails at places such as Stackpole in Pembrokeshire, or longer technical routes such as the Long Mind Classic through the Shropshire Hills countryside. Plans are also underway to create more trust cycle routes, thanks to a further £1 million of funding from National Lottery and Sport England. These designated trails will open new areas for people to explore, while ensuring that precious habitats are kept safe from harm. The Trust is setting up more cycle hire hubs too. There are currently nine Trust places where you can hire a bike for the day, including non-standard cycles for those with additional needs, and some also offer cycling activities. You can join in with beginner sessions at Osterley Park in London or get mountain bike lessons at Lanhydrock in Cornwall. There's still work to do to make trust places accessible for everyone, but based on my experiences, it's worth the effort. I'd be hard-pressed to pick a favourite moment, but highlights of the trip include a ranger-led tour of Orford Ness in Suffolk, testing my legs on the mountain passes in the lakes and drifting along the Northumberland coast in glorious weather, which I hear is not that common. Of course, the real hero of the trip was my trusty bike, which was loaned to me by the wife of my friend Simon, who sadly died in 2019. It felt like a fitting tribute to take his bike to all of these places that he would have loved and served as a daily reminder of how important it is that we should all get to enjoy nature, beauty and history. Whether you're planning a fun day out or simply looking for a greener way to travel, I hope that the work we're doing will make it easier for you to enjoy your favourite places, with or without a bike. Hugh Davies still enjoys hitting the trails on his bike, especially if there's a cafe along the way. You can plan your own car-free trips to trust places near you. Visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash sustainable dash travel for more information. This feature is part of a new series called Balancing Act. Each issue, we'll take a deeper look into an area of nature, history or beauty, where the Trust has an interest. 
we'll curate respectful discussion among selected experts with a range of views and explain the Trust's approach. Here, in a feature called Resetting the River, we're looking at an extreme example of river restoration, where the Trust has reset the path of the River Aller at Honeycutt in Somerset. A sensible approach to restoring nature or a disruption of the waterway? Vincent Crump investigates, and his words are read by Olivia Vinnell. The UK's rivers are in crisis. Long before last year's revelations about water company sewage discharges, decades of development pressure, intensive farming and over-extraction had only left 14% of English rivers in good ecological health. Over the years, they've been straightened, dredged and shorn of vegetation. A third of our freshwater species is threatened or endangered, and extreme weather events are bringing flooding to communities up and down the land. With climate change predicted to raise flood peaks by a fifth, reliance on dams, embankments and other artificial barriers is no longer viable. Experts agree the approach must change in favour of solutions more attuned with nature. Hope is at hand. In the last four years, the Environment Agency has been working to improve 5,000 miles, that's 8,000 kilometres, of riverscape across England, and similar programmes are being rolled out by Natural Resources Wales and the Department for Infrastructure in Northern Ireland. In England, more than 100 catchment-based partnerships are bringing together landowners, local authorities and charities to find a more sustainable way forward, and the National Trust is in the vanguard. Since 2018, our multi-million pound Riverlands programme has been investing in nature-based restoration schemes across a dozen UK river basins, from the Derwent to the Comwy to the X. Ben Erdley, Riverlands project manager for the Trust at Honeycutt, explains, The techniques vary. You might block drainage ditches, lower the riverbank, create leaky dams by adding woody debris, or even carve out new meanders to re-wiggle streams, but the fundamental goal is always to slow the flow, keeping water higher in the landscape for longer, so the river is less prone to flash flooding when big rains come. Sounds sensible enough, but the Riverlands team's response at the Honeycutt Estate in Somerset could seem extreme. Here, they've raised the river channel completely, blocking the main trunk so the water has to find its own way instead of following a prescribed route. The project Ben manages on the River Alla is literally groundbreaking. It has trundled in bulldozers to fill the entire 3-metre or 9.8-foot-wide channel along more than a kilometre, 0.6 miles, of its course. That involved moving 4,000 tonnes of earth, scattering 700 tonnes of fallen tree trunks across the floodplain, and adding 25,000 water-loving saplings and 250 kilos of wildflower seed. Completed last summer, the result is a vibrant new 7-hectare, 17-acre wetland. A pickup sticks waterscape of mazy streams, pools, marshes and water meadows, already teeming with a richer diversity of aquatic life. Ben explains, Our target is to restore the river to what's called stage zero. It's the first time it's been tried on this scale in the UK. The river evolves to find its own course spilling across the floodplain to create a mosaic of microhabitats. We are reversing centuries of drainage and returning the Aller to a time before it was degraded. We're setting the river free. 
Colin Thorne of Nottingham University is one of the UK's foremost experts in flooding and river management and has helped pioneer the stage zero approach in the US over the past decade. He says, Latest research shows that in their natural state, rivers should flood several times annually. 42% of the rivers in England and Wales have been entirely disconnected from their floodplain, so it's little wonder they behave erratically in the face of our changing climate. Stage zero, Colin says, shifts the needle. Instead of trying to contain flooding, you deliberately encourage it in reaches of the river that can absorb it, which means away from businesses and homes. He says, more than 50 stage zero schemes are now on the map in the US, and the only word to describe them is transformative. There is growing evidence that their new wetlands supercharge biodiversity. We're hearing about fish numbers in US schemes increasing 30-fold. And there are multiple benefits for society too. Reconnecting streams to underground aquifers not only cushions against flash floods downstream, it makes the landscape less likely to run dry in times of drought. The slow-moving water filters out sediment and pollution. Topsoil is held on farms instead of washing away. And the new wetlands act as a carbon sink it's known that damper soils absorb more CO2. Like most ideas at the cutting edge, however, the approach is not without sceptics. UK land resources are stretched, and doubters wonder whether a model developed among the backwoods of Oregon has a place here. Anglers worry about the impact on fishing grounds. Hydraulic engineers point out that adding obstacles such as prone logs to a riverscape is an inexact science. And while many farmers are themselves planting trees and reinstating ponds to offset soil erosion and flooding, some counsel caution when letting nature take its course. Ewan Walker Munro farms 485 hectares, 1,200 acres, of arable crops on Tayside, and he says that creating new wetlands requires a delicate touch. Moving water is a powerful entity, so you need to select sites very carefully and pay attention to how far it will encroach, he says. A tweak here and there is fairly easy to quantify, but fully restoring a river is a pretty radical change and could bring unintended consequences. Britain's floodplains are widely farmed, so if we block up or re-meander, will that compromise the land's productivity? If fields are only farmable because the river was straightened and ground was drained, there's a balance to be struck between society's desire for affordable food and the understandable wish to enhance nature. Instead, Ewan's own regenerative farming approach looks to retain water on the land at the soil level. We do this by increasing its organic matter, ploughing less frequently and leaving the stalks of our cereals standing, so they rot down and enrich the ground, he adds. But I'm very much in favour of nature-based river restoration, where local farmers are supportive. Let's try lots of innovative things at a small scale and find out what works. After all, wetland projects can be mitigated or reversed if issues arise. The trust scheme at Honeycutt is underpinned by three years of science, including laser-based surveys of the floodplain and hydraulic modelling to predict how far and how fast the reshaped waters will extend. Six months on, gauges are measuring the depth, speed and quality of water downstream, and riverbed rocks have been fitted with sensors to track them. 
Any scheme like this requires meticulous design and a five-year program of post-project monitoring, plus a full adaptive management plan in case problems follow, says Colin. Because the Honeycutt scheme is so innovative, all that data will be hugely valuable, arming us with the evidence we need to roll out the benefits nationwide. Knee-deep in his shining new Somerset waterland, Ben revels in the explosion of wildlife that has returned. The change feels visceral. You can hear the dragonflies, see the frog spawn, watch kestrels and buzzards swooping after mice and voles, he says. Ultimately, though, it's important to stress this approach is pragmatic. It won't be appropriate everywhere. It's about harnessing the power of nature to improve people's lives along the valley and beyond. We can't keep on doing the same thing with our rivers and expect a different result. The Honeycutt Riverlands Project has been supported by the Interreg 2 Seas Co-Adapt Programme and the Environment Agency, together with the Somerset Rivers Authority, Green Recovery Challenge Fund and Frugi. Alarond in Devon is an extraordinary 16-sided cottage with a history as intriguing as its appearance. As a two-year conservation project draws to a close, historian Susanna Lipscomb discovers the history of the unusual little house and its innovative, creative owners. The feature is read by Akia Henry. Approaching Alarond, it looks like a house out of a fairy tale. Stepping through the green front door, it takes a moment for my eyes to adjust to the dim light cast by the lozenge-shaped lattice windows. Ahead, through an arch, the space opens out into an enormously high room with doorways in every direction. This central room is octagonal and nearly 11 metres, or 36 feet high. Looking up, I can glimpse an astonishing gallery. More than 200 years ago, 26,000 shells, along with bones, moss, ceramic pieces, starfish, fur cones, feathers and medallions, were pressed into the wet lime plaster of the walls by the house's creators. The effect is almost as if I'm peering up from the bottom of a rock pool, past seaweed-covered walls to the waterline and the shells above. It is reminiscent of the 18th century fashion for grottoes, but those tended to be built in the grounds of country houses. What it was not usual to do was to construct a grotto and then live in it. The house was created by two independent, innovative and purposeful women. Jane and Mary Parminter were first cousins once removed. Mary's father was Jane's first cousin. They came from an affluent Devon merchant family, whose wealth derived largely from trade and the expanding networks of the British Empire and colonialism. In 1772, when Mary was five years old, her mother died, and she and her younger sister, Rebecca, went to live with Jane's parents. A year later, Jane's mother also passed away. So Jane, then aged 23, moved back home to bring up her siblings and two young cousins. Then both their fathers died in 1779 and 1780. And when Mary was 15, so did Rebecca. Their shared catalogue of loss seems to have created a strong attachment between Jane and Mary, a sort of quasi-parental bond that lasted for the rest of their lives. Their father's deaths left them very wealthy. In 1784, 
they set off with Jane's sister Elizabeth and a female friend on a grand tour of Europe. This was a fashionable form of higher education for rich young men, but rather more unusual for women. They travelled through France, Italy and Switzerland. They reportedly saw Marie Antoinette at Versailles and, in 1786, became the first women to scale Mont Buet in the French Alps. This made the Parminters pioneer female mountaineers, the first women to climb above 3,000 metres, 10,000 feet, at a time when mountaineering was a new sport, even for men, and well before the famous ascent of Mont Blanc by Marie Paradis in 1808. Jane and Mary never married. We don't know why not, as the documents that survived them do not say. They didn't, in fact, leave much of a paper trail at all, and what they did is largely lost. Jane kept a travel journal, extracts of which were published in 1902, but the original was put in the Exeter Record Office for safekeeping and destroyed by Second World War bombs. It's likely, however, that marriage would have meant surrendering their independence, wealth and property to a man. Having had female relatives who'd remained unmarried and three great-aunts who had accrued and managed wealth, they had a sense of the possible, and they had things they wanted to do. Returning from their travels, the cousins bought an eight-hectare or 20-acre plot of land with views of Exmouth and the Devon coast, and between 1795 and 1798, they built Alaronde. Family tradition says Jane designed it herself, but it could have been one of Mary's relatives, architect John Lauder. The house's unusual shape represented their travels, faith and artistic taste. Its original thatched roof, lime-washed walls and coastal setting made it fashionable in its rustic beauty, a type of building known as cottage ornée or ornamental cottage. It echoed churches they would have seen, such as the Basilica of San Vitale in Ravenna, Italy, and perhaps the octagonal chapels popular in England among Methodists. The Shell Gallery is reminiscent of the Shell Grotto at Palazzo Borromeo on Isola Bella in Italy's Lake Maggiore. Designed to be lived in without artificial lighting, Alaronde made the most of its natural light. With a lantern window on the top and a layout that capitalised on the movement of the sun, what were then bedrooms benefited from the early morning beams, while an ingenious wedge-shaped book nook had good light for reading at 11am and the dining room enjoyed the setting sun. Why did two such wealthy women who owned chunks of Holborn, Islington and Pentonville in London, as well as land in Devon, choose to live in such a relatively humble dwelling? The answer might lie in the way they chose to decorate their home with handcrafted objects to make it uniquely their own. In the drawing room, they created, or maybe commissioned, a frieze in an elaborate design of concentric circles made of feathers. They decorated the overmantel of a fireplace with neoclassical engravings, embellished a watercolour of St Michael's Mount in Cornwall with shells, and made pictures of sand and seaweed. They even created specimen tables inlaid with morsels of rock, souvenirs from their continental travels and riches from Devon's beaches. Each object evoked a memory. Each design brought back their travels and excursions. We might think of the house as a creative response to their multiple bereavements, perhaps especially to the death of Elizabeth, 
who had travelled with them and died shortly after their return. They turned their grief into beauty. As in life, so in faith, Jane and Mary were nonconformists. They had a profound sense of religious purpose and, after completing Alaronde, they built Point in View, a tiny nonconformist chapel with a spire. Its exterior was originally covered in shells. There were four apartments for poor, elderly spinsters and a schoolroom to educate girls. This was social welfare on a doll's house scale. Today, the chapel is managed by the Mary Parminter Trust and there are six almshouses, one of which is in the original building. Jane died in 1811, just a few months after Point in View was completed. But Mary lived in Alaronde for another 38 years. She had distinct ideas about what should happen to the house after her death. In her will, she prescribed that only unmarried kinswomen were to inherit it. Failure to live in it, or any attempt to change its furnishings or decoration, nullified the inheritance. She wanted it to be a space for female accomplishment and memory. So Alaronde passed in turn to three women, but the last, intending to marry, sold it to her brother, Reverend Oswald Reichel. It is largely because of its sole male owner that Alaronde no longer looks quite as it did when the Parminters lived there. Reichel's major interventions, creating an upper floor and adding dormer windows, replacing the thatch with tile, knocking down internal walls and adding massive radiators for central heating, a dumb waiter and gas lighting, drove a coach and horses through the terms of Mary's will. But they did make the house more livable. After Reichel, the house returned to female ownership. It was bought by his nieces, Margaret and Stella Tudor, one a talented painter, the other a musician and seasoned traveller. It was their relative, Ursula Tudor Perkins, who lived in and cared for Alaronde before selling it to the National Trust in 1991. Over recent years, trust specialists and external experts have carried out painstaking conservation work in the shell gallery and grotto staircase, cleaning, reattaching and stabilising the shells. The gallery is still too fragile to enter, but visitors can get closer with the help of touchscreens. They've also conserved 27 metres or 89 feet of the frieze in the drawing room, using sponges and soft brushes to clean the feathers. In the octagon, directly below the shell gallery, they've restored the wall paintings, using paint analysis to recreate a pattern based on the oldest known decoration of the space. The work was funded with support from the National Lottery Heritage Fund, the Wolfson Foundation and public donations. The recent conservation work is only the start of the trust's intentions for Alaronde. A LIDAR, or laser scanning survey, has detected previous decorative schemes on the shell gallery ceiling. The team hopes to experiment with light projections that will give a sense of the elements that may have been lost over time. There are also plans for a room of discovery, a new immersive space to help visitors appreciate the craft and skill behind the making of the shell gallery and grotto staircase. For now, though, I leave with a sense that Jane and Mary Parminter would be well pleased by the care with which their collections have been preserved.
Their magic lives on in this most extraordinary of homes. You can discover more about the Parminters and their remarkable home and explore the Shell Gallery virtual experience on Alaron's webpage. The house is open Tuesdays to Sundays from the 29th of March to the 31st of October. Other little homes with big histories include... 575 Wandsworth Road in London. Kenyan-born poet, novelist and civil servant Khadambi Asalachi spent 20 years turning his Georgian terraced home into a work of art, embellishing it with hand-carved fretwork. Book a tour from March at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash 575-Wandsworth-Road. Kinver Edge and the Rock Houses in Staffordshire. The rock houses carved into soft red sandstone were occupied from at least 1777 until the 1960s. Some have been restored based on photos and the memories of past residents. Plan your visit at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash kinver dash edge. Placin Rue in Gwyneth. Sisters Eileen, Lorna and Honora Keating bought their dilapidated 17th century house in 1939 and dedicated their lives to restoring it and recreating its garden. It's currently closed for re-roofing, but it will open again on the 20th of March. Go to nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash plus dash in dash rue. Places in Trust Care will shortly be bursting with spring blooms, but the best thing about Blossom is that you can find it everywhere. It lines city streets and rambles over rural fields, and this year you can even listen to it being celebrated in song. Discover how you can take part in the Trust's annual Festival of Blossom wherever you are. The Bloomtown Trail Blossom in Urban Spaces when trees in city streets and parks across the UK wake from winter slumbers to bloom each spring, it's thanks in part to a nationwide craze for cherry trees during the urban regeneration that took place just after the Second World War. Standing shoulder to shoulder with brick and concrete in civic centres, city parks and suburban streets, pink and white cherry blossom was just the tonic people needed in the post-war years and still lifts spirits today. In Manchester, the Trust is helping people to make the most of the city's blossom show by publishing its Bloomtown Trail for the second year as part of the Festival of Blossom. A map of the trail shows 30 of the city's best blossom spots, from the Parsonage Gardens just off Deansgate to Hullard Park in Old Trafford and Peel Park in Salford. The Sky Garden at Castlefield Viaduct run by the Trust, will be one of the stars of the show. From there, visitors can take part in a series of blossom-themed events across Greater Manchester. If you don't live close enough to Manchester to try the trail, you can plot yourself a walking route across your local parks, green spaces and high streets to make your own trail of blooms. Find information about Bloomtown events at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash castlefield-viaduct. A Song of Blossom Blossom in Poetry and Music Nature is a great catalyst for creativity. As part of this year's festival, 
the UK's poet laureate Simon Armitage has written a specially commissioned series of poems to reflect on the nature of blossom. Simon's poems will be released in a book called Blossom Eyes, which will be published later this year, and also as a series of songs, with his spoken vocals set to music by his band LYR. The collaboration culminates in a set of live performances, which features local choirs and student filmmakers, and will inspire creative events at trust places nationwide throughout spring. Simon explains, Before I could start writing about Blossom, I looked into the science of it and dug into the mythology and folklore of trees. There is Blossom's obvious exuberance, with its hopefulness and optimism at the beginning of the year, but I also think it has a natural melancholy. It comes and goes, and I think it tells us something about our own mortality and our life cycle, about letting go and moving on. I didn't just want to write about the candy floss blossom. I wanted to try and access something a little bit more poignant. Nature can't always speak, so we're speaking up for it through language and music. The songs will be released on all major streaming platforms in March, with accompanying music videos by young filmmakers available to watch through the National Trust website. The band is releasing the sheet music for some of the songs too, so anyone can play, speak or sing them. Listen to an exclusive preview of Profusion, one of the blossomized songs by Simon Armitage and LYR, at linktr.ee forward slash LYR blossomize. A taste of Hinami. Blossom on your visit. Alongside Kingston Lacey's traditional 17th century formal garden and blooming cedar and lime avenues, lies a Japanese garden where visitors can get a small taste of Hinami, Japan's famous cherry blossom season. Kingston Lacey's 2.8 hectare or 7 acre Japanese garden was created by Henrietta Banks after she was inspired by visiting the Japan-British Exhibition in London in 1910. Henrietta was the mother of Henry John Ralph Banks, who gave the Dorset estate to the National Trust. Like almost all of the themed gardens of this era, hers draws from Japanese garden ideals rather than staying truly authentic and is the largest Japanese-style garden in the country. Thanks to a huge restoration project in 2005, Henrietta's garden springs to life with cherry blossom every year. As part of the annual Festival of Blossom, the team at Kingston Lacey has curated a blossom music playlist. You can immerse yourself in a full sensory experience while you wander through the Japanese garden by borrowing headphones and scanning a QR code. Kingston Lacey's rangers will be getting in on the festival fun by sharing live updates of the best blossom walks around the estate and beyond. There will also be lots of opportunities for visitors to join in by making art and poetry inspired by the beauty of the season. Enjoy the Festival of Blossom at Kingston Lacey. Visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Kingston dash Lacey. To find a Festival of Blossom event near you, go to nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash what's dash on or search the upcoming events on your local property webpage. Coming together for nature. The People's Plan for Nature calls for a long-term, cross-party commitment to protect nature. Here, three of the people who helped to create the plan share their stories. 
it's November 2022, and 103 people have gathered in Birmingham. They don't know each other, and they're from different backgrounds, demographics, and political viewpoints, but they share a commitment to discussing the crisis facing nature and coming up with solutions to tackle it. Together, they form the People's Assembly for Nature, part of a wider process commissioned by the Trust, RSPB, and WWF UK to develop the world's first People's Plan for Nature, which launched last March. It draws on ideas from everyday people to come up with actions we can all take to protect and restore nature. The State of Nature Report 2023 starkly demonstrates how nature continues to decline in the UK, with only half our biodiversity remaining. One in six species and 43% of the birds in the UK are at risk of extinction. The People's Assembly for Nature was an important opportunity for people to come together to understand the issues, air opinions and feel heard. First, there was an open call for ideas on how to save nature. Over 10,000 people had their say, and that set the themes to be discussed by the Assembly. Invitations were sent at random, and participants chosen from their responses through a robust independent selection process to be as representative of the UK population as possible. The delegates were invited to four weekends of learning and debate, two in person and two online. They made friends, heard from experts presenting a range of views for solutions to climate change and nature deficit, and agreed final recommendations. The result is the People's Plan for Nature, which has been published and presented to politicians in Parliament. It calls on everyone from government, businesses, organisations, community networks and charities to individuals to develop actions in response to the plan. The National Trust's Outdoors and Natural Resources Director, Patrick Begg, says there's never been a more urgent time to get people talking about what we can do to protect nature. People's individual actions matter. If we all make small changes, they add up to something much bigger, both in reducing carbon emissions and making space for nature, and in creating a powerful wave of change. It shows there's an appetite for action, and that will help lead to the bigger changes we need to see across businesses and government. So what's the Trust doing to help slow nature's decline? We will become carbon net zero by 2030, says Patrick. We're creating and restoring wildlife habitats, including new green corridors for people and nature within towns and cities, connecting them with nature. We're also working in partnership with businesses that are on a journey towards becoming more climate-friendly, including supporting our ambition to plant 20 million new trees by 2030. Daniel Nevitt from Norwich, Rachel Garcia from West Yorkshire and Peter Dunbar from Newcastle are three of the People's Assembly delegates. Here, they share what it was like being part of the experience and how it has changed their own approach to helping tackle the nature crisis. We hear from Daniel first, followed by Rachel and Peter. Their words are read by Glenn McCready and Akia Henry. My PhD was in metabolic plant biology but I never thought about biology in the context of the natural environment. I love being out in nature, but I always assumed other people were taking care of the natural world for me, and while I voted for environmental policies, I didn't really think about what I could do in my own life and career to help. 
Then the leaflet for the People's Assembly came through the door. I went into it naively thinking I was going to have a nice chat about science and nature, and I wasn't prepared for its impact on me. Involve Foundation, the facilitators, did a fantastic job of organising the meetings. I met so many different people. It was a rare opportunity to sit in a room with a hundred other people picked for their diversity through a really robust process and talk about nature. I found this unexpected part of me that could use my skills to help drive conversations. It felt good that although we might start with completely opposite opinions, we could find common ground and come to a good conclusion. I'm a huge advocate now for this sort of people's assembly. Many European countries use them, and I think that politicians could learn a lot if they set up more of them to help shape policy. It's a great way to inform citizens of a subject area, to get unbiased opinions from a good spread of political backgrounds, and better partisan agreement to roll out a plan. I was very pleased with the recommendations that came out of the process. I attended a People's Assembly event at Westminster with 60 to 70 MPs and different peers. We went to the House of Commons and sat down in front of a group called Peers for the Planet to talk about the plan. I would never have dreamed of being part of something that goes to Westminster and gets discussed by people who make decisions for the country. I was really humbled by that. These days I try to advocate for nature with friends down the pub too, rather than just staying silent. I also changed my job during the People's Assembly process. I research how to grow meat from stem cells for a start-up, so that in future we won't have to rely on raising millions of animals for pork belly and bacon. It's better for the environment, because it would mean we wouldn't have to rear so much livestock, which is part of the problem. Lots of people eat meat, but would rather have an alternative source. I believe technology can be part of the solution. Nature doesn't have a voice, and we have to do what we can to ensure its protection for future generations. I was born and raised in Minnesota in the US. At weekends, we stayed with friends in the country and we'd have bonfires under the stars. My father was a Navy SEAL and he'd take us on expeditions so we could learn and explore. Now, I live in the UK with my two small children and I volunteer for a range of charities in between job hunting and my work as a self-published author. We're fortunate to have a large garden which backs onto fields and I try to bring a sense of exploration to my children's lives. My youngest loves insects and is especially fond of snails. When I got the invitation to the People's Assembly, I thought the professionals would ask for our experiences and then come up with the solutions. But it was the exact opposite. We listened to the people in the field and then they said, right, what would you do? It gave me the chance to ask how we make things accessible and sustainable for those in constrained economic positions. We can't all afford to put solar panels on our roofs, and some people have no access to green spaces because they live in a cramped city. I also wonder if people are ready to make the necessary changes. We're all behind the recommendations in the People's Plan for Nature, but change is scary 
and sometimes we can't be as flexible as we'd like to be. It's about acknowledging that and saying, what is the best we can do? Since attending the assembly, I've got a water butt to collect rainwater and I've left 10% of the garden wild. I've run a workshop in my local community to teach people how to cook healthy, meat-free meals like lentil soup and advised our local Friends of Railway Station group about grants they can apply for to plant trees outside the station. I also had a water-saving device fitted for the shower and we're eating less meat as a family. I once talked to my son about how humans are a part of nature and that without nature, there's no us. That's why I want to see nature rejuvenated, because even if I don't see the results, I want my children to. I do think more young people care about nature today, and it's because of them I believe we're going to be okay. If the young people we're raising become kinder, more thoughtful, discerning and compassionate towards nature, we'll have done our jobs as parents right. I gave up work as a data analyst to be a full-time carer for my mum, who has Parkinson's, and I'm also a late-diagnosed autistic person. Nature is a big part of my life, and I'd be lost without it. When I was growing up, we had a lovely little black Labrador called Tess. Some of my nicest memories are of going for walks with her in the woods and watching her run around. I often walk out in the woods near Newcastle, and I'm lucky to be close to the coast, too. I enjoy seeing the local owls, rabbits, squirrels and ducks. Nature is so important for mental health. I've noticed there are far fewer insects like ladybirds and dragonflies around now compared to when I was a child. My local river is looking pretty dirty these days. I was nervous to take part in the People's Assembly, especially being around so many new faces, but it was really well organised and professional. They had facilitators on the groups of tables to make sure everyone had their say, so it felt very democratic. Everyone was lovely, and I've certainly learned a lot. The expert presentations were eye-opening. I knew nature was in crisis, but I didn't realise how bad it was, especially the loss of biodiversity. I found it really rewarding to participate, and I'm very proud and glad I did. I even spoke at the Peers for the Planet event at the House of Lords last year. Since the process, my life has changed quite a bit. I have given up meat and fish, and I'm cutting down on dairy, although not cheese on pizza. I found it easy to change my diet, and I feel better for it. I've lost a bit of weight, too. I've also joined my local RSPB group, and I went to an innovation event run by Northumbrian Water. We came up with an idea for green plaques for nature, where people can scan QR codes at nature reserves to find out more about what's there. Another idea was to lobby local councils to get better transport links to green spaces, which again would raise people's appreciation of nature, so they'll hopefully take better care of it. I think we need to educate more people and businesses to do their part. I'd like to see supermarkets do more to discourage food waste by looking at things like fresh produce sold in multi-packs, which can mean people end up buying more than they need and not always eating it. 
I'd also like to see more education about nature in schools. I would encourage more people to look for opportunities to do things like public assemblies. It's easy to think that small actions won't make a difference, but the power of people coming together can really make a big change. You can read the People's Plan for Nature at peoplesplanfornature.org and find the State of Nature 2023 report on the Trust's website. You could also consider talking or writing to your elected representatives and to family and friends to let them know your views. Out and about. Before we wrap up this edition, it's time to hear about some of the events going on at National Trust Places this spring. Please make sure to check individual property websites or call the property for the latest information before you visit. First off, some places to enjoy beautiful blossom this spring. Ardress House in County Armagh. County Armagh is Ireland's orchard county, and the orchard at Ardress House is a beautiful place to take a stroll among the blossom-laden trees. Ardress is open at weekends and on public holidays from March. Keteel in Cornwall. Keteel's orchards are often among the first in the country to bloom, thanks to the mild Cornish climate. See orchards full of the famous Tamar Valley cherry trees, along with pear, walnut and more than 125 traditional apple varieties. Blickling in Norfolk. Blackthorn and hawthorn are usually the first to blossom at Blickling, followed by the fruit trees in the orchard and walled garden, which was restored and replanted in 2016. Don't forget to look out for the magnolias coming into bloom in the West Garden. For more trust places where you can enjoy blossom season, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash blossom. Ickworth Estate in Suffolk. Experience life as a servant in 1935 in a Life Below Stairs tour. Hear the stories of servants and learn how the fourth Marquess and Marchioness of Bristol ran the house. The tour runs Monday to Friday until the 1st of March. At Buckland Abbey in Devon, follow the Forgotten Fairy Tales trail through Buckland's gardens to discover where some of our favourite fairy tales came from and find out how they've changed over the centuries. Fairy tale-inspired craft activities will be available on selected days. The trail runs from the 10th of February to the 10th of March. Lindisfarne Castle in Northumberland. Experience the spirit of Lindisfarne in Embodied Cacophony, a new light, sound and sculptural installation by artist and composer Liz Gray. Inspired by the history of Holy Island, the artwork tells stories about the castle's past, present and future. Embodied Cacophony runs from the 1st of March 2024 to October 2025. Easter Adventures. It wouldn't be Easter without a trail to follow. This year, there are more than 195 National Trust Easter trails to choose from across England, Wales and Northern Ireland. So you'll find plenty of opportunities to wander along winding garden paths and spot signs of spring or time travel with adventures set against the backdrop of historic castles and mansions. Every trail ends with a chocolate egg, or a vegan free-from chocolate egg, both made using cocoa from Rainforest Alliance Certified Farms. The cost is £3 per trail. 
Find your nearest trail at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Easter. Birds of a feather. Spring brings migratory birds such as swallows and swifts back to our shores. Learn where and how to spot some of them. Cuckoos have long tails and pointed wings that make them look a bit like a small bird of prey. Their backs, heads and chests are slate grey with a stripy black and white belly. They are globally endangered but can usually be found at Wiccan Fen in Cambridgeshire between April and June. Listen out for their distinctive call. House martins usually zoom around in flocks. They have a short forked tail, a white rump, blue-black upper parts and a pure white throat and belly. Large numbers of house martins and swallows return to Croom in Worcestershire each year, where they nest around the house and old Royal Air Force buildings. Swallows are often seen flying low to the ground or perching on telephone wires. They have glossy blue-black upper parts, a red throat, a white underside and a distinctive long-forked tail with feather streamers. Newtown National Nature Reserve on the Isle of Wight provides a summer home for many swallows. Swifts live on the wing and, as their name suggests, they fly fast and high. They're a dark sooty brown with a short forked tail and crescent-shaped wings in flight. Visit Fine Court in Somerset from April onwards and you'll likely spot swifts diving and darting over the meadow, hunting insects in flight. And finally, walk this way. May is National Walking Month, so what better time to hit the trails? To help put a spring in your step, explore routes near you at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash walking. This is only a very small sample of the many things to do when you're out and about at Trust Places this spring. Find out more at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash visit. Well, that's all from us this spring issue. I hope you've enjoyed it, and do let us know what you think of this audio edition. You can email us at magazine at nationaltrust.org.uk. The National Trust magazine Spring 2024 was presented by me, Sally Palmer. The readers in this edition were Akia Henry, Glenn McCready, and Olivia Vinnell. It was produced for National Trust magazine by Sound Understanding. All items are copyright. If you've listened to this audio edition as a podcast, you might also like to know that CDs are available to visually impaired members of the National Trust. They're distributed by the RNIB. If you know of anyone who is eligible and who would like to receive one, please call the RNIB on 01733 375 370. Or you can write, enclosing the membership number, to Sales and Operations, RNIB, Midgate House, Midgate, Peterborough, PE1, 1TN. And if you'd like more audio content from the Trust, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us for the next audio issue of National Trust magazine. <laughs>